Wow. Amen. Thank you, thank you. What is it that makes church, church? Maybe another way to phrase that is, what are the hallmarks of Christian community? Is it uh, the color of the carpet or uh, the pew that uh, you started sitting in when you first started going to that church, and then five years later you keep sitting in that pew, so it begins to feel like your pew, and then someone else sits in your pew, but you don't want to be that kind of person, but you also don't know where to sit now and sit in someone else's pew, and it's just weird. Is it the signs and the symbols that we surround ourselves in? Is it the jargon that we use like chancel and, and narthex? Is it that uh, glamour shots portrait of Anglo Jesus where he's looking off to the side and has the Fabio hair that every country church has proudly displayed up front like my great-grandparents Mount Bethel Bible Church and Backwoods, Mississippi, is that what makes church, church? Or is there something deeper? It's a little trite these days to say that the church is not the building, the church is the people. Right? And yet, there's a lot about the building of church that can make us feel like church. There's a lot about the, the space that we walk into the, that can make it feel that way. And yet, when we look back at what the Christian community was meant to be, it wasn't a people drawn together by a love of architecture. It was a people drawn together by a common love. In fact, originally, there, there was no building that made the church the church. There was a, a temple, but there was so much more than that. And so today, as we continue in this series called Beginnings, Endings, and Inbetweens, where we've looked at those items or those, those aspects of faith that kind of hem us in behind and before, the way that we're met by faith and, and met in Christian community uh, in the beginning of life and at the end and beyond, um, today let's talk about the church itself, this chosen family, as we just heard sung, the people that we are meant to journey and do life together with, to share a common love with. And, and let's look at the original Christian community that we find in Acts chapter 2, also known as the Gospel of Luke part 2, right? Too Luke, too furious. Um, it's a very specific joke. Um, the laughter indicated this much, too. Uh, the, the book of Acts is, is the sequel to the Gospel of Luke, same author. And in the second chapter, we are introduced to uh, the Christian community as this beautifully simple and powerfully meaningful thing. And today we're going to walk through this text, and we're going to look at what those hallmarks are of the Christian community, because I believe that the same things that drove that early Christian movement are the same things that we could find deep and valuable meaning in today. Even though our contexts are wildly different, even though we live 2,000 years apart, I believe that what worked then is what God is calling us to work into now. And so let's take, it to, take a look at this text Together. If you've got your Bibles, you can open up to Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 43. 42, rather. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 42. Luke says this They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Awe 
came upon everyone. Because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. For the word of God in Scripture, and for the word of God among us, and for the word of God within us, let us say, thanks be to God. There's something about moving from life alone to life in community that creates this shift in us. Did you, did you, as you were hearing those words listed everywhere and everyone, and there were meals and there was sharing and there was fellowship and all this, all and all and all, and God is adding this word that I see sort of woven through, though never spoken, is abundance. If you know what it's like to feel completely alone and isolated in this world, and if you know, you know, it can, you can adopt this kind of scarcity mindset where I, I've got to look out for myself. Nobody else cares for me. Therefore, I don't need to concern myself with anybody else. And it's a very dangerous place to be. And yet here we're being given an image of community that is living into this abundance in a few different key areas that I want us to take a look at today. Because I believe that this chosen family we're called into, that the gift of community is the abundant life that we are called into as a result. The first thing I see in this community that is in abundance is abundant awe. I love that word awe. We don't use it enough, probably because it's a little awkward to say awe. It's a short word. You'd think it'd be easier, but you try preaching this sermon. Awe is a weird word to say. Abundant awe, it's this, it comes from this Greek word phobos, which if you're thinking of like phobia, yeah, that's the right root word. It's a word that means more than awe. It also means fear, but not like a scared fear, more like a healthy respect kind of fear. And it, like many Greek and Hebrew words, there's a lot more meaning in it than we can get with a simple English transliteration, right? But that word phobos, that, that respect, that awe that comes over the community, is because they are witnessing the signs and the wonders and the miracles at work, not just in, within each of themselves, but within the larger community and even beyond their family. It says that an awe came over everyone because God performed many wonders and signs through the apostles. I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes I have a really hard time identifying God's work in my life on a daily basis. Anybody else relate to that? It can be hard for me uh, on a daily, even weekly, or even monthly or seasonally basis to be able to say, this is how I know God's hand is at work in my life. Sometimes I can feel a little like, man, I, I, don't, I don't know if I can put my finger on that. Anybody else with me there? One of the gifts of Christian community is that I don't have to uh, presume that I am the center of the universe and that, if, you know, when we begin to feel that way, if we, if we begin to feel like we're in the center of the cosmos and creation, then if we don't feel that God's hand is upon us or at work in our lives, then maybe God's hand isn't moving anywhere, right? Because if it was moving, it would surely be moving for me. 
One of the gifts of Christian community is that when I struggle to feel God's hand upon me or at work in my life, it can sometimes be easier to see God's hand at work in the lives of others. Not in like a um, Instagram jealousy way of like, God, I wish my life was like that. Where is God when I need it? You know, but more in like, I call it a holy envy. Like, wow, that's really powerful. I wonder if I could see God working in my life in, in a similar way. And would you know it, sometimes when I begin to see God at work in the life of someone I know or someone I love, it begins to be easier for me to then see God at work in my own life. I go, oh, I didn't consider it. Maybe God's, oh, Oh, there it is. Okay, interesting. We've been in a season this fall of a lot of memorial services. It's been a season of grieving here at AUMC. Like at many churches, I imagine, by nature of the fact that last year we could not host memorial services in the way that we normally would due to COVID. So we've had services for folks who are recently deceased, and we've had services for folks who died before I arrived 16 months ago. I've never gotten to meet some of the saints that we have honored in this way. And even though I haven't met many of the people that I've been involved in their ceremonies, I, I got to say there's something so powerful about hearing others testify to the way that God's grace was at work in the life of someone else. For people I didn't even know, in a way I know them now, because of that kind of testimony that I get to hear. Sometimes it's from the words of remembrance from the stage, and, and, and sometimes it's just in conversation. Tell me what it was about your loved one that that you were in love with. Tell, tell me how you saw God's love at work in their life. As difficult a season as this has been, I, will, I gotta say, as a pastor, it's been one of the most enriching seasons as well. Getting to have a front row seat to the way that God has been at work in the lives of so many people. Today, we have a memorial service at three o'clock for a man named Pete Tatman. I never met Pete, but maybe you don't have any idea who I'm talking about either because you're new like me. Pete was a pillar of this church for many, many years. And, and even though I've never met Pete, I've met Pete because of the stories that people have told me about Pete. And even though I never got to see God at work in Pete's life, in this life, this afternoon, my faith will be richer and deeper as a result because I'm going to get to hear how God was at work through Pete in this world. It's such a gift to be a part of a community where you're not relying upon God's hand to constantly be upon your head and you can identify it all the time, always. Boy, that would be exhausting. Isn't it a gift to be a part of a group where you can celebrate the way that God is at work in the lives of others, even as you are looking for and discerning how God may be at work in your own life? The point, my friends, is this. In this abundance of awe, the Christian community invites me, invites you, invites us to decenter de myself and to stand in awe at the wonder of it all. When I remove myself from the center of the cosmos and of all of creation, and I allow myself to be a part of something bigger than me, then yeah, some days I'm going to be able to say beyond a shadow of a doubt, this is how God's at work in my life. But most days, I just get to stand in awe and say, look at the signs and wonders happening around me. This is incredible. The second abundance that I see in this passage is the abundant generosity. Did you hear how Marxist they were? I'm kidding. If you're an economist, don't email me right now. I'm not an economist. It was a little joke. I'm a theologian. Leave me alone. Email someone else. That sounds kind of Marxist. Anyways, um, it says, all who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their position, possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. 
You know, that's interesting. It, it, it communicates a couple of things. The first is the simple fact that this Christian community included people of different socioeconomic statuses. Now, that might seem sort of obvious and apparent, but that's important for us to notice. In those days, the social system was pretty rigid, and today it's not that much different, right? Think about in your own life the amount of diversity you have amongst your relationships, and I imagine a lot of us have fairly diverse relationships, but for many people, socioeconomic diversity in who you hang out with is the last domino to fall, right? That's the, that's the last barrier to be broken. And so the fact that this Christian community from its outset was not some church plant in an affluent suburb of Jerusalem meant only for wealthy people, right? But it was a, it was a table that brought together the, the beggar outside the temple and the man walking in who had way more than he could ever think to spend. And they were, they were not just brought together to be community, they were brought together to belong to one another, to see their possessions differently. You know, God is inviting this Christian community into a new economy of sorts, where we're not so driven by that scarcity mindset that says, I need to be most concerned about my bottom line and my financial status and my social status and my mortgage and my needs and, and everything goes to that. And then maybe whatever I have left over, Maybe I'll be charitable. Instead, God's inviting them into this sort of mindset of abundance that says when we come together around a table, there is already enough. It just depends on how we hold our stuff. It sort of plays off this Jewish tr tradition and concept of tithe. And the tithe, if you'll remember, is, the, is this Jewish concept that the first 10% of what you own and what you earn belongs to God right? Literally, it belongs to God. To keep that would be to robbing God in the Jewish tradition. And so, uh, as a result, the tithe became this process that everybody in the community gave 10% of their possessions, of their belongings, of their earnings. Even the priests in the temple gave their 10%, and likewise, and likewise, and likewise. And here, they're expanding this view to say that remaining 90% doesn't really belong to me either. I'm simply a steward of it. In fact, the, the, the rest of, of, of my belongings really belongs to the community. And so those that have plenty are selling and those who have need are receiving and it's okay, it's working. It reminds me of, of some time I spent in Israel in seminary. I got to go on a trip with Perkins School of Theology to um, Israel and Palestine uh, to do some theological learning and some cultural learning. Fascinating. Some of the best 14 days of my life. Ate a lot of falafel. Um, we went to uh, a kibbutz. If you're not familiar with what kibbutzes are, um, they are intentional living communities that are uh, communitarian. Hear me clearly, communitarian. Save the emails, all right? Um, communitarian communities are these communities where people basically come together and like this early Christian community, they see their resources as communal and they, and they, and they support one another. It's like a large apartment complex, essentially, where everybody is essentially part of the same family. And, and we met with one of the young men who ran this thing. Uh, in Israel, you can do one of two things when you're a young adult. You can either serve in the military or serve in like domestic uh, charitable acts, nonprofit acts, and that's what he chose to do. He was running this kibbutz. And it was fascinating to see this happen on sort of a micro scale, this, this image that God has cast in Acts chapter 2 being lived out in modern-day Israel in a kibbutz. Pretty wild, right? Because what, what, what we're seeing here is not something that we could accomplish overnight society-wide, right? We're talking about a radically different understanding of belongings and possessions. But 
I think what the Christian community understood is that we can practice this in small scale ways that then grow and then grow and then grow. That's kind of the way generosity works. If I went up to you right now and said, why don't you sell all of your belongings and give your money to the poor, you, like the rich young man in the gospels, might walk away sad, right? I don't wanna do that, right? And yet there's something about this Christian community that says, hey, you know, Bob needs this. Oh, well, I've got some extra. Let me sell that off. It's one meaningful decision followed by another meaningful decision followed by another meaningful decision. And we begin to hold the things that used to hold us a little more loosely as we begin to hold one another a little more tightly. And that's the power of God's economy in this abundant generosity. When we understand what it means to belong to one another, it changes the way that we see our belongings. And if you think that this is not a countercultural message for the American church in the 21st century, read it again. How many of us are held by our belongings? How many of us are held by the materialistic, consumption-oriented, consumer-oriented culture that we live in? There is something radical about what God is pitching here as an image for community where the lines between you and me in terms of my possessions begin to be blurred. And if that makes you uncomfortable, it makes me uncomfortable. I'm right there with you. But when I look at the kind of image that God is casting, that's the vision for the kind of people that I want to be because the reality is there's already enough. It's just a question of how we hold the things that we think belong to us. Lastly, the the image of abundance that I see woven through here towards the end is abundant authenticity. Now, that's a real buzzword now, isn't it? Authentic, Lord. It's like, uh, you know, organic. It's one of those buzzwords, you know, we want to build an authentic, organic. What's another buzzword that we use right now in Christian world? It's such a buzzword. But when I look at what it means here in Acts chapter 2 to be authentic, there's something powerful in what's spoken. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. That word fellowship is the Greek word koinonia. Koinonia is this idea of of, um, committing to a people, um, not just financially, as we just addressed, but, but, but committing yourself, like offering your full open self to a people. That's what it means to fellowship. This isn't just like a potluck where you make small talk out on a church table, right? But this is like true, like risky, vulnerable openness that you share with people whom you love and whom you trust. That's what koinonia means. It says in verse 46, day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread together at home. Every single day, they broke bread together in their homes, and they ate their food with glad and generous hearts. The traditional Jewish practice of, of sharing a meal after Shabbat is sort of being brought back here in this early Christian movement. Again, this is a movement within Judaism. So they're going to the temple, they're, ha- they're, they're, they're having their worship, and then they're coming home to have this Quinania open fellowship, intimate meal. So it's in a way sort of returning to the roots of what their Jewish tradition was meant to be. By this point in the early Christian movement days, you know, religion had become so performative, where you go into the temple and, and you're, you're trying to put on a show of how holy and how righteous you are. Not that we could relate to that in 21st century American church at all, I know. It's a hard leap to make. But I love this idea that not only were they attending to their religious services, but then they were 
pairing that with this intimate, open, koinonia fellowship that was invited into their homes. I think that detail is important, invited into homes. 4.30 on Thursday, 4.30 in the afternoon on Thursday. Do you know what that time is? That is the time in the week when my house looks like an absolute train wreck. 4.30 p.m. on Thursday afternoons. Anybody else with me on this? That's our time because the whole week, we, you know, we had cleaned up over the weekend, but then Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, we are dog tired at the end of our days. Reagan and I look at each other and go, should we clean or should we watch Ted Lasso again? And you know what we're going to pick, right? And so then by Thursday at 4.30 in the afternoon, we get our kids home and we look around and it looks like a war zone in there. Currently, if you come over to my house at 4.30 on a Thursday, what you're liable to find is you're going to find ornaments on the ground because we are that family that already has our Christmas tree up. I will not apologize. Um, it looks like the Home Alone scene where he sets the ornaments out. That's my son. You can thank him for that. I'm like, thank you, Jude, for putting all the ornaments on the ground where they belong. Uh, if you go in the bathroom, the toilet's probably not flushed. Just going to go ahead and throw that out there. Someone forgot. I could blame my daughter, but I don't know. Um, you're going to find laundry that you're not sure if it's clean or dirty on the couch. And so you just sort of have to throw it in the laundry again, just to make sure. Do you have laundry like that? You're like, oh, who, who can tell? <sniffs> Sniff check. Oh, still not sure. Probably not a good sign, right? You'll also find a two-year-old boy who, nothing but a diaper, will run up to you and give you a huge hug and a sloppy wet kiss on the cheek and then run away just as enigmatically. You'll find an uh, almost six-year-old girl who will probably draw you a picture before you leave that has you and her and some combination of a rainbow, a unicorn, or something in it as a sign of her love. Um, you'll find uh, a meal, and it could be chicken nuggets and mac and cheese, or it could be something I feel a lot fancier about cooking, but you'll leave fed. And you'll have Reagan, who's like the best conversation partner in the universe. And whatever you share with her, in three weeks, she'll text you to follow up to see, how did your grandmother's gallbladder surgery go? Like, that's what you'll find in our home. It, the toilet's not flushed, but there's a whole lot of goodness there too, right? And a lot of us are scared to invite people in. Now, I'm talking literally about a home right now. Um, but the reality is I think a lot of us are scared to let people in whether that's physically, emotionally, spiritually, because uh, we know that the toilet's not flushed and we know that the laundry may not be clean and we know that there may be ornaments on the ground, literally or figuratively speaking. And we really like to show up on Sunday morning when we can put on our Sunday best and we can know that we're polished and put together and we can perform like everything's okay when the reality is a lot of us are suffering inside. And I think part of the healing that the Christian community offers in Acts chapter two is that they were invited into each other's homes on Thursday at 4.30, and they were invited in to see the mess and the craziness and the love and the joy. And there's a reason why God was adding to their number day after day, day because doesn't that sound like a kind of community that you wanna be a part of? Where you could show up, whether you look like this or you look like this, you know? If that makes you uncomfortable, I'm sorry, I don't know how to fix it now. Don't you want to be a part of a community that doesn't need you to have it all put together? Don't you want to be a part of a community that can accept that your toilet may not be flushed? And that's okay. You can flush it. We all know how to flush toilets. It's not a big deal. Don't you want to be a part of a community that accepts all that you are and doesn't ask you to be anything more or anything less right now in this moment, but just simply embraces the you?
It's one thing to show up in our Sunday best church, but God calls us to also show up in our Thursday worst. It's one thing to show up in our Sunday best, but God also calls us to show up in our Thursday worst. I don't know what day of the week it is for you, but I pray that we could foster the kind of community here that embraces each other, not just on the performative moments, but in the messy in-betweens as well. I think that's the kind of community that we have building here. That's what I've experienced as your pastor in the last 16 months. So let's keep that movement growing. God calls us into abundance, abundance of awe, taking ourselves out of the center, marveling at the wonder, abundance of generosity, belonging to one another and holding our belongings differently, and abundance of authenticity, inviting each other in, whether it's the Sunday morning or the Thursday afternoon or the everything in between. That's the kind of community that I would wanna be a part of. That's the kind of community that God seeks to grow. That's the community that I pray we can continue to live into being. Amen.